Hello, good morning. I'm very pleased to contribute today to the UN Audiovisual uh, Library of International Law. I think it's a very important initiative for students and scholars all over the world. Uh, it's a globalization of higher education and information, in a way, thanks to the UN. Uh, the subject of my lecture is the basic features of the dispute settlement system of the World Trade Organization, the WTO, looking to the law and looking to its practice. Uh, I myself am a professor of international and European law in Milan, Italy, at Bocconi University. But since 2001 until 2009, I am a member of the appellate body of the World Trade Organization in Geneva, uh, which is, as I'll explain, uh, the tribunal of the organization, the World Trade Court, as some uh, call it, uh, by fact, even if not by name. And so I think I have had the unique uh, opportunity of both being an academic in this field and then having to face the practice of adjudicating disputes between states, between the members of the World Trade Organization. Well, this dispute settlement system has attracted a lot of attention because, in fact, it has innovative features within the various models of international justice existing at the turn of the millennium. Uh, this dispute settlement system is an integral part of the World Trade Organization. The agreements that were established with the Marrakesh Agreement of 94 at the end of the long Uruguay round of negotiations, of trade negotiations of the GATT that extended from 1986 to 1994. And this system intends and is significantly more reliable and more articulated than the panel mechanism, which was a dispute settlement mechanism under the GATT, notably under its Article 23. Uh, this intends to be a guarantee of, of, of the substantive obligations that have been accepted by the negotiating parties to ensure that the market access commitments and other undertaking mutually agreed in the area not only of goods, the GATT, but the services, trading services, the GATTs, and uh, commercial aspects of intellectual property rights, the TWIPS agreement, which are part of a single undertaking under the WTO agreement. All countries have to commit to all of them if they want to become members of the WTO. There are now 152 members currently. Uh, these commitments are guaranteed by this dispute settlement uh, mechanism and there is a specific agreement and understanding on the settlement of dispute DSU that uh, provides the necessary disciplines in this area. What is the function of this mechanism, first of all? Well, it is not just to settle uh, and resolve a few occasional disputes as it was in the time of GATT. The goal is of safeguarding a central element and giving a central element in providing security and predictability to the multilateral trading system. This is what Article 3.2 of the DSU 
says. So this explains this evolution towards the legalization or jurisdictionalization of the dispute settlement system. And this in turn is the mirror of the qualitative leap between GATT and WTO between an incomplete framework, multilateral but not organized, which was essential as it used to be said, power-based, relying mostly on negotiations, towards a rules-based organization, where procedural guarantees and implementation mechanisms are meant to ensure compliance with the rules, so they are a necessary complement to agreed substantive provisions. And this we, we see it in two directions. Now the dispute settlement bodies, which is, a, as I will explain better later, a two-stage system. First the panels, a kind of arbitration, and then the newly established permanent appellate body, a kind of appellate court, must base their decisions on legal ground. It is specified that the body of law to be applied the trade agreements are to be interpreted by means of the customary rules of interpretation of public international law, Article 3.2 of the DSU, which in practice means the principles of interpretations provided in the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties of 1969, the Vienna Convention. So the WTO is not anymore a soft law system, subject to unilateral discretion, negotiated adjustments in case of non-compliance. It's law and not economic or political expediency, at least formally, that derives a resolution of disputes within the new organization once it comes to dispute settlement formal dispute settlement. So the WTO can be considered a specialized subsystem or regime within the international community, characterized, however, by certain particular features. For instance, in respect of the consequences of unlawful acts, they are government, governed by the DSU, and retaliation and suspension of concessions are the only ways admitted in order to react. So. The WTO doesn't function outside the international legal order. It does not operate in clinical isolation from international law, as was said in one of the first, even in the first, appellate body report in the U.S. gasoline dispute of 1996. So while the ad hoc panel have been retained from the GATT system, they are not exclusively or necessary of lawyers, but also by experts, other expert trade diplomats. But uh, this has been retained, but on top of it, an appellate review has been introduced, conducted by a permanent body endowed with most of the features typical of an international tribunal. This is quite remarkable because, as most students will know, appeal instance is still exceptional in interstate disputes. Why so? Because this hardly fits with the model of arbitral uh, settlement, ad hoc justice, relying on an arbitral agreement between the parties, which characterizes most of interstate 
litigation submitted to dispute resolution bodies in the international sphere. So the limited jurisdiction of those tribunals explain the absence of a second instance. Of course, the European Court of Justice within the European Union is a different system. And also international criminal courts, of course, uh, enact decisions against individuals and so uh, the concerns there are different. I would like to highlight a, a theme of discussion is the balance in the WTO between what we could call the judicial arm and the political bodies, which represent the direct expression of the member states' collective will in what is called the member-driven organization. And in fact, uh, the political bodies have an important role also in this dispute settlement phase. And in fact, decisions of adjudicatory bodies are not per se binding judgment, as I will explain, but there is an adoption by the political members, by the uh, uh, constituency acting collectively. And this is sometimes considered by observers, especially legal observers, a weakness. We are not a full tribunal because although we function like a tribunal, then at the end we don't issue a binding judgment per se. But this may be considered rather an advantage of the new system in terms of practice and legal realism. Because decision that establish, if it's so the case, that a breach has been committed and requiring redress and compliance with an obligation that has been disregarded are not formal judgments, are rather of the form of recommendation. But their authority derives ultimately from the political body of the organization, the dispute settlement body comprising the membership as a whole. So it's the WTO, the whole membership, that becomes the source of the decision when it adopts panel or appellate body reports. And as I will explain, under the automatic adoption mechanism, which require unanimity in order not to adopt a report, this is somehow automatic. Thus, it's a political body that requires implementation of the member concern. The weight of the entire membership is put behind any decision resolving a dispute. So the political consequences of non-compliance is harder to bear for any party that has to face somehow the whole constituency and not just its opponent in the dispute. So uh, it's not just an notarial acknowledgement by automatic adoption, but it's really a decision of the entire organization. And as I have mentioned, sometimes if you read newspapers when decisions in dispute settlement of the WTO make the headline, they say the WTO has decided, the WTO has condemned. It's not just a court, the trade court. You have to go to the little characters to discover that. So the political dimension is not thereby ignored, and the DSP then has an important role when it monitors implementation. So implementation of these decisions are not left to the parties, and sometimes we know in international arena they are not complied with, but uh, on the contrary, uh, there is an implementation mechanism uh, to facilitate implementation, to try to get agreement, and if 
this is not the case, then trade sanctions or retaliations are authorized, must be authorized, consisting in the suspension or withdrawal of tariff or other concessions. As a mean to an end, not as a sanction in themselves, but in order to ensure compliance, because what the WTO wants is to open, according to the term of the commitments, uh, reciprocally the markets. Whereas if you have sanctions, one country doesn't comply and doesn't open its market, and the other uh, party, in retaliation, closes its market as a sanction. So it's a game which is negative for world trade and for both parties. And in fact, the, the political aspect is taken into account in implementation because it's recognized that states that must implement a decision must undertake legislative or administrative changes and the implementation process may be sometimes politically difficult, so voluntary compensation, temporary measures, and above all, there is a reasonable period of time to comply. And this is also a big difference from traditional international law, because under traditional international law, if any, a, a breach of a norm has been made, there has been a responsibility of state for an unlawful act, the obligation is to withdraw, to reestablish the status quo ante, that is to give ex nunc retrospective remedies, whereas in the WTO system uh, the obligation is only for the future and there is a reasonable period of time that may go up to 15 months in order to implement the decision. So it is prospective looking at world trade and the economic and commercial interests of uh, the parties uh, in this forward-looking uh, approach. So the flexibility of the implementation somehow is a pendant of the strict obligations accepted by WTO members to submit compulsorily and exclusively to this dispute settlement system, this third-party adjudication, in order to ensure effective compliance with the multilateral trade agreements. Uh, we have to distinguish dispute settlement from negotiation. That's always not so clear. It's for the members to make political choice and negotiations, subject to democratic debate, parliamentary control, so to be accountable to their public opinion in their respective countries. International judicial and other similar bodies have a different task. They are in charge of interpreting existing rules, applying them in case of dispute, not of laying down new rules. So uh, I think it's a wrong expression that in common law countries is sometimes used following the domestic approach that there is a judicial legislation. I think there is no judicial legislation. There is a judicial application and interpretation of existing rules. So, and you see this delicate balance. So, uh, disputes are decided by independent and impartial bodies, but they have not been defined as arbitral or judicial organs, but by panels, which is a kind of ambiguous definition, and by an appellate body. And formally, these are recommendations, rulings, findings, not decisions. These are the terms used. And by the way, it's spelled out that they cannot add or diminish the rights and obligations provided in the covered agreement. And this is in conformity with the approach I just described, that the 
proper province of judicial body is to resolve a dispute based on existing law, even if sometimes uncertain or obscure, and not to set out new rules. And there is something more in the WTO agreement. Article 9.2 of the WTO agreement pre presents to us a rare provision. It provides that the General Council, member made by the whole membership, can adopt authoritative interpretations of any WTO agreement, and this not necessarily by consensus, but a three-quarter majority would suffice. This interpretation is an authentic interpretation that might even entail de facto modification of an existing provision. But here, here, this has never been resorted to in 13 years, and it's difficult to envisage that the membership would uh, agree, maybe, on such an authoritative interpretation. Now, after this general introduction, I would like to go in some more details of the basic features of the system and then uh, point to certain of its features also from a legal and systematic point of view. Now, any WTO member may have recourse to the procedures of the DSU if it considers that any benefit accruing to it directly or indirectly under the covered agreements are being impaired by measures taken by another member. So any agreement, trade, commerce, GATT, uh, GATT, agriculture, uh, rules of origin can be brought to dispute settlement and we have a table showing which agreements have been more invoked in these uh, proceedings. Uh, there is a right to the establishment of a panel. So this is a compulsory jurisdiction. A country which really thinks that its rights have been affected has a right to start this procedure. By the way, uh, there is no restriction on local standing. It has not to be shown that a country had lost a trade, an important trade opportunity. Any country can invoke it. We have a series of cases which have been rather known, the banana disputes, on one hand the European community, on the other hand as claimants some Latin American countries like Ecuador uh, and others complaining that the setup of the community market for banana uh, uh, is not in conformity with the agreement with the MFN clause, but also the United States has come in and the U.S. is not a producer of banana, but it has important trade interests because they are important companies, which American companies that trade and export, go and export banana from Latin America also to the community market. And it has been recognized that also the United States could start these proceedings. How are these proceedings? Well, there are three stages. The first is diplomatic consultations in an effort to reach a mutually agreeable solution of the matter in dispute. The majority of the disputes are settled. By. Up to now, there have been about 370 disputes by the beginning of 2008. And of those, uh, 120 have been brought to the panels. The others, so more than 200, have been settled in consultation. 
If consultations are not successful, then the dispute may advance to the second stage, the adjudicative stage. The complainant member then requested the DSB to establish a panel to examine the dispute, and it is entitled to get so, the, to obtain this a dispute settlement body by reverse consensus, only by unanimity could block the establishment of a panel. And of course, the country that asked for the establishment of the panel will not vote against it at the same time. So it's really a compulsory jurisdiction. Then there is the panel, which is established by the party, or if failing the agreement on by the Director General of the WTO, three members, three experts, not of the nationalities of the parties involved, written an oral submission, and also third parties, other members of the WTO who signal a general systemic interest, can participate, can contribute, and they usually make an important contribution. At the end of the process, the panel sets out its legal finding in the report, which is circulated to all members in the three official languages of the WTO, English, French, Spanish, and is publicly available on the website. Now, either the parties are satisfied or they may appeal. They may appeal to the standing appellate body established by the DSP in 1995 at the beginning of the uh, uh, functioning of the WTO. Now, the appellate body is composed of seven members, appointed each for four years' term, with a possibility to be reappointed once. The qualifications are to be persons of recognized authority, demonstrated expertise in law, international trade, and the subject matter of the WTO agreement generally. They must be unaffiliated with any government, they must be uh, work independently, and being impartial. One feature is notable, only seven members, usually international tribunals, are made by many judges. Here the choice has been to made by a small representation. May I say that currently in 2008 there is an American lady, I come from a European community country, there is currently a Japanese member, a Chinese lady, a Filipino lady, a, a former lawyer from South Africa, a law professor from Brazil, comprising this uh, little group having a heavy responsibility. Now, uh, each case is heard by a division, as it's called, of three appellate body members chosen randomly. Nationality is no bar, so the European member can sit in a case involving the, Europe, uh, uh, the European community, and the Brazilian member can sit and is currently sitting in a case involving Brazil, for instance. To ensure consistency and coherence in decision-making, divisions exchange view with the other four members of the appellate body are envisaged. So it's we don't decide in bank, but all cases are somehow every member is involved, every member of the appellate body uh, has to study the matter. The appeal is limited to issues of law, not of facts, covered in the panel report and the legal interpretation developed by the panel. And what can the pan appellate body do? It may uphold, modify, or reverse the legal findings and conclusions of the panel. Time limits are quite strict. The panel have basically 180 days, six months, but since they have often complicated factual questions to resolve, their term may be 
as a whole extended. The, some panels have taken more than two years to decide the cases. The so-called Boeing Abus case has been going on for more than two years, I believe, before a panel. Whereas the appellate body had a strict term of 90 days maximum to decide, and this is almost always respected or really extended with the agreement of the parties. So this also is a big difference from certain international tribunals that are lots of judges, lots of times, lots of pleading, 90 days restricts the possibility there's just a one day or two day oral hearing. Now the final stage. The DSP, as I mentioned, the political organ, adopts either the panel report or the appellate report with the relevant panel report, if there has been an appeal, within 30 or 60 days. And under the reverse consensus rule, this happens automatically. Countries may complain at the DSB, may statement, usually a country that loses, a member that loses is not happy, but sometimes uh, a, a disputing party may win on a point of law and lose on a point of fact, so the outcome is more balanced than what newspapers sometimes present. Now, then, there is a third stage, compliance implementation. I have mentioned there is some time to comply and there is a multilateral surveillance. There could be implementation, mutably accepted contemplation, or at the end, those sanctions. May I say that in practice, uh, compliance has been not very swiftly, but there has been hardly a case. There have been a few cases where retaliation have been straight suspension, uh, let's say countermeasures, better term, have been uh, authorized by the DSB, have been applied by the country, uh, the European community, Japan, uh, the United States, Brazil, Canada, depending from the cases. But only in one case this has lasted a long time. This is the hormone disputes between the Canada and uh, United States as claimants and the community as responded. Uh, in the all other cases, after some time, compliance has been reached and these suspension have been lifted. Now, what is the content of these reports of the panel of the appellate body? Well, uh, they contain legal findings and conclusions. So, their function is really typical of a judicial adjudication. I want to look more carefully now at this aspect, especially concerning the appellate body. Is the appellate body really a judicial organ without name? And why the name has not been given? I have already explained something. The last word is in the constituency. It's basically automatic, but the constituency could not approve a report, not adopt a report, and on the other hand, there is a weight of the membership of the WTO that enhances the authority of this report. Now, I look at the essential features of the appellate body, be at the procedural rules and see to its functions. This is Article 17 of the DSU. Well, the appellate body, as to features, follows the pattern of other international tribunal. Expert individual, basic experience in law. They are appointed by the political organs. They also must have the geographic balance representing the various traditions and interests of the membership. 
and then independence, impartiality, competence, other by and short. There is the requirement of abstention in case of conflicts of interest, typical and essential prerequisites for members of a judicial body. The body is permanent, although the members don't operate full-time because the caseload doesn't justify it between four and ten cases per year. But there are some specific features. I have mentioned them. The short term of uh, appointment, the small number of members, divisions by collegiality. And then I say again, nationality of individual members is irrelevant. And this is very important. Uh, I would say membership had never complained, never hinted that because in a division there was a judge, a member of the appellate body of this or that country, this has influenced the decision. So it shows that individual which must have a high standing and are called to decide dispute between sovereign nations uh, are capable of being impartial, independent and not affected by their nationality and other links, and this has been recognized by the state involved. Another feature interesting that the appellate body and the panels operate in the seat of the WTO in Geneva. It's not like the court, International Court of Justice within The Hague with the main headquarters of the UN in New York or the main quarters of the uh, European Communities and Union being Brussels and the court being in uh, Luxembourg. Now let's come to the procedure. Well, adversary proceedings, due process typical of international jurisdiction are key features. I have recalled the rapidity of the procedure, the possibility of the third party's intervention. I, uh, other states, I want to focus on two important issues which have been raised speaking about the legitimacy and the accountability of these proceedings. The proceedings are confidential. This is written in the text because governments wanted it like this way. It's more typical of arbitration than, of course, of judicial proceedings. At the end of the day, however, the panel report have as an annex all the briefs of the parties, the key documents, so there is transparency. Publicity is not an essential requirement of international jurisdiction. In fact, confidentiality is typical of arbitration. But a recent development has been that parties have been um, in agreement to open hearings to the public, basically through closed-circuit TV. And we have had some panels hearings open recently, and there will be also uh, hearings of the appellate body open to public view and then viewable on, on, on the TV and on the website. Equality of the arms is respected. Developing countries can avail themselves in WTO litigation of the service of the Advisory Center on WTO Law, established in 1999 as a separate organization funded by voluntary contribution, and they often resort to that. Otherwise, all members in disputes can resort to their own legal services. They can also resort to private law firms, uh, pro bono or not pro bono, and this has been recognized and as legitimate and is often 
made. Another feature that has been discussed is the feature of Amicus Curiae. What is Amicus Curiae? It's something that comes basically from the US Supreme Court where private parties, associations, NGOs in the public interest they represent submit briefs to a tribunal uh, pointing to certain aspects that the parties maybe have not pointed out. The general interest involved in certain litigation. Now, the WTO system of disputes is intergovernmental. Even if companies, economic interests are involved and usually are involved, they have no locus standis. It's the government that uh, uh, put forth a case. So the dispute which is known Boeing Airbus, it's really United States against the European Union and European Union against the United States. So often it's a kind General interests, economic interests of the states are involved, but sometimes it's really diplomatic protection of specific industries. There was a case commonly called Fuji, uh, uh, Kodak against Fuji, but this was really United States against Japan. Now, Amicus Curia are not provided in the rules, and it was up to the appellate body in some cases involving environmental issues, turtle shrimp case, asbestos case, to admit amicus curiae. Now, many governments have objected to that and have said, well, it's not written in the rules, the system is intergovernmental, the appellate body has overstepped its authority. However, this has been de facto accepted, but very sparingly. Most of the case time, uh, parties put forth all the argument also in the public interest of the system. So uh, rarely uh, um, Amicus Curie NGOs add really something very important and relevant, but it's an important opening, I think, too, towards civil society and general interest that might be affected in disputes. Now I come to the third tier, the function. The function is really that of judging. It's to evaluate the conformity of a state measure and more generally the conduct of a respondent member state alleged to the claimant to be in breach of an international legal obligation owed it under a treaty and to judge whether the claim is founded or not. So, and this objective assessment of the facts reserved to the panels and of the law must be based on international law, specifically WTO agreements and general principles applying to the judicial fact uh, function. Let's say the burden of proof, the rules of evidence. Litigation deals therefore with issues of international legality, in French, contentieux de l'égalité. It does not aim at assessing and awarding damages. We don't award the appellate body, the panels are not, have not the authority to award damages. So, at the end we have in substance a declarative judgment, typical of international courts, that determines which part is right and which is wrong with an explicit reference to customary international law rules of interpretation in Article 3.2 of the DSU. And in fact, legal literature, as well international tribunals and other authorities are, as the International Law Commission, for instance, consider panels and uh, the appellate body as one of an international tribunal. 
producing a subsidiary source of international law in their decisions according to Article 31.1d of the Statute of the International Courts of Justice. And indeed, since cases have been many, the panels and above all the appellate body have made interesting contributions to the principles of interpretation of treaties particularly in articulating systematically, for instance, the difference between context, subsequent practice, preparatory work of a treaty, and the circumstances of its conclusions, according to under 31, the principles of Article 31 and 32 of the Vienna Convention. May I focus on this issue for those who are interested? The appellate body approach to interpretation differs somehow from that followed by many other international courts. And for what? For its painstaking attention to the terms of the treaty provisions and for the methodical and explicit recourse to the interpretative criteria laid down in those Articles 31 and 32. Often, instead, international court, which has a long-standing authority established by many years, rather rely on an ipsedixit approach and they don't specify why, on what, and exactly basis they have made a finding. Uh, some have criticized this approach as being excessively narrow. On the other uh, hand, I submit that this cautious approach of the appellate body and the, its reluctance to engage in innovative and teleological interpretation may be in part explained by the compulsory character of its jurisdiction and exclusivity. The more uh, the, the, the system is compulsory and binding, the more the adjudicatory body has to be careful to base its decisions on clearly accepted and uh, uh, explainable rules. Now, uh, the appellate body and the panels have not only have to deal on technical issues of rules of origin, of custom duties, of definitions of products, but also on more general issues, because the legal obligation stemming from the WTO agreements is also sensitive from a more general point of view. The WTO dispute system with this jurisdiction short time limits, compulsory, has no equivalent in other sectors of international law and relations. And therefore, often disputes that are not purely trade, trade and, are brought to this system. Environmental protection may conflict or may intersect with trade, labor standards, the same. So the judicial branch of the WTO is de facto called to determine the limits of the WTO jurisdiction. Article 20 of the GATT is very much to the point. Another sensitive demarcation line, which again sometimes the WTO system of settlement of disputes is called to determine, is that dividing trade-related multilateral obligations from the domestic competence of member states to freely regulate the needs and interests in their domestic sphere of their uh, 
population and consistency, the domestic regulatory competence. Let's think GMO. GMO is an issue of trade. What are the rules to admit and the obligation to admit a GMO product coming, in, coming from another country? But it's very much a domestic issue whether a nation wants to, to what level of protection, whether it wants to, to, to trade them, whether it wants to produce them. And these are, of course, uh, delicate balance to be made in dispute as it has happened. Now, all these features point to a jurisdictional, judicial character, but there is a very basic standard feature missing. And uh, a feature that prevents panels and appellate body from being formally defined as tribunals. And this is a lack of authority to resolve disputes with binding effect on the parties. The lack of res judicata effect of panel and appellate body reports by themselves. Formally, they contain recommendations. In the reality, however, is quite different. The, the authority of the res judicata accrues to these reports through the adoption of them by the DSB. And since adoption occurs automatically on the basis of the reverse or negative consensus rule, only by unanimous consent of all parties, including the parties to the dispute and that which has won the case, can a report be set aside. It comes to no surprise that in 120 panel reports, including appellate body reports adopted in 12 years, this has never happened and it's quite unlikely to happen. So the system works uh, without the name but as a judicial system. And there is also the requirement of finality, typical of international judgments, that applies to panel reports and to appellate review. The DSB has in theory the competence not to adopt the report, but could not modify them. And I think now I speak with a chapeau of a professor more than the one of a judge without, international judge without the name. This is not incompatible with the general theory on international binding adjudication by means of third-party awards and judicial decisions. The traditional view is still valid, I think, that the binding res judicata authority of adjudicatory bodies derives from the agreement of the parties to entrust the binding resolution of the dispute to a particular settlement mechanism, ad hoc or permanent tribunal. And adjudication creates new obligations for the parties, those containing the decision. And since WTO adjudication affects all the members, because it's a precedent, it's a system, and it interprets rules that may be applicable and are applicable between all the members, it's not so exceptional that bilateral adjudication should be subject to multilateral screening and acceptance before being enforceable erga omnes. The DSP, thus, is not an adjudicatory or judicial body in respect of which panels and appellate body would exercise only an advisory role or a preparatory role. No, the role of the DSP is a very important role, that of conferring without any discretion concerning the merits of the case, formal binding force on the decision of the respective dispute issued by panels and appellate body what in reality are the judicial body of the WTO. This is a kind of effective inaction, which is an integral part of, of the legal discourse when evaluating the features of an international institution such as the WTO. Well, I approach by now uh, the end of 
uh, my lecture. Uh, I wish to point out that thus the systems go beyond the judicial determination of the right of obligation of a party to the dispute through a declaratory judgment. Uh, the system says, the DSU says, spells out that the function of the dispute settlement system is that to clarify the existing rule of the covered agreement, of the WTO agreement. So there is recognized a function of explanation and of jurisprudence beyond the individual case. So, even if there is not spelled out that there is a stare decisis system, there is not. The appellate body may change its ju interpretation jurisprudence. A panel may not follow the previous case of the appellate body. Of course, it w could be subject to reversal on appeal. Uh, uh, the system points to the stability, predictability through the clarification of the rules. And in such complicated agreements, sometimes hastily negotiated after many years in the last minutes, there is a role for this objective clarification. So, what remains at the end? The vitality of the dispute settlement system and the distinction between the legal and the, the negotiating and the judicial uh, pillar. Now, one of the features is its success. I would like to point out that in international law, as well known, um, recourse to arbitral third-party judicial uh, settlement of dispute between states is not so common, at least until recently. The absence of tribunals was a feature of the international legal system. Most of the jurisdiction is based on ad hoc consent of the states, be it in a compromis or in a bilateral treaty. There is little multilateral compul compulsory jurisdiction. And the most, uh, not even in the United Nations system of the law of the sea, where there is the international tribunal, it doesn't have any compulsory jurisdiction except on a very narrow matters, and it issues very rarely decisions. In, in the WTO, it's exactly the opposite. Recourse to this dispute settlement is common. It's not considered any kind of unfriendly act. It's even advocated very often by the industries involved. They think they have a, an obstacle which is not treaty-based in a foreign market. They ask the government to put the case in Geneva in front of the WTO dispute settlement system. 120 panels in 12 years and about 20 cases pending. 80 appeals decision in 12 years. This makes uh, a lot of case law and of course a lot of impact in trade but also in international law in general. So the effectiveness of this system is accepted and its authority spilling over in its case uh, uh, beyond the boundary somehow of the WTO. Uh, and I would like to say proceedings have been concluded according to deadlines. The administrative structure has withstood the workload. There is a very efficient legal secretariat for the panels and separately for the appellate body. Major trading economies are not the only initiators of the cases, as foreseeable, but small developing countries too often have recourse to the system to protect their access to the markets of large economies, which are then the defendants, the respondents are basically United States, the European Union, Japan, 
Australia, uh, but also among themselves. There have been cases between Honduras and the Dominican Republic, a case pending between Panama and Colombia. Uh, often there have been cases between members of regional trade organization, and this is quite peculiar. Many cases between NAFTA countries, United States against Mexico, Mexico against United States, Canada against United States, the well-known softwood lumber dispute that has given reason to about half a dozen cases. While they have been brought more to the WTO in Geneva, to the multilateral forum, than to the NAFTA, than to the NAFTA dispute settlement mechanism. And this is quite peculiar and shows that bilateralism, regionalism uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't rule out the permanence and the role of the multilateral uh, system. Implementation, of course, has been uh, slower and more difficult. But at the end of the day, it, with this a carefully balanced implementation system, uh, those results from the dispute settlement that are expected have been by and large obtained by countries that have resorted to this system. So it's a good example of working multilateralism in the present global scenario, and, and this in part thanks to the efficient functioning of the dispute settlement system that has been once defined by Director General Mike Moore of the WTO as a jewel in the crown. And especially the normal recourse to settlement procedure is an important feature that goes beyond uh, the, the commercial system. Of course, you may say, well, here there are not borders, a question of high politics involved, uh, basic human rights, it's trade, it's commerce, it's opening of the markets, industries are behind, and they, of course, want to have swift uh, uh, resolution of the dispute in order to have the benefit of the opening of international trade. This is a fact, but it's still governments that uh, decide which case to bring, when to bring it, and what to do it. And, and the fact, I'll, I'll finish with a last uh, remark, I mean this fact that the states, governments, are subject to these multilateral dis disciplines and also in litigation uh, is something quite new. I mean, in the European context, uh, members of the European Union are well accustomed that the European Court of Justice may have the last say and that they ha may have to change the legislation because a court has said that. They may complain from time to time that there is a gouvernement des juges, a government of the judges, but this has been accepted for 50 years. Even in the larger context of the uh, Council of Europe, the European Court of Human Rights, does not just decide individual cases of breaches of human rights by certain governments, but decides cases which imply that states have to change their law, their criminal law, their judicial system, here and there. But on the world arena, this is less common. Other, in other settings, governments are not used to have to go to the parliament and say we have to change a law that the parliament has approved because a tribunal in Geneva has said so. But the tribunal has said so because this is what was written ultimately in an agreement that the parliament, the congress uh, and so the, have accepted. But this is still a learning experience and I think it's understandable that sometimes the 
some countries, some political opinions, in some uh, uh, in some quarters, there is some some unsatisfaction of this. But at the end of the day, uh, a decision goes against one country one day, but for the benefit of that country on the other day. So countries, while complaining when they lose case, they are. Uh, they they use the system every time uh, uh, constantly. Uh, let's see the People's Republic of China, which came after the uh, into the world training system after the complete the establishment of the WTO. Well, after a number of years where they haven't had cases, now it start. There are cases against the People's Republic of China, and the People's Republic of China brings cases against other countries. And this is the rules of the game to maintain the benefits of a multilateral trading system, also through the role of law and through the role of arbitral and judicial bodies, although they don't have formally that name. And with this, I thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.